Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, g'day. I'm Ben Prong. This is the Unforgiving 60 podcast, and it would be incomplete without... Tim Curtis. Hello, everyone. And hello, Tim. Hey, have we ever done this before? A double header? Ooh. Difficult to tell. I don't think we'll ever know. It would be impossible to tell, but we've got one today. And this is actually a really special, important powerful mm-hmm. conversation that we're about to have mm-hmm. with Cam and Sean Watts. Now, Cam Watts, we've known um, for a little while and we've been really itching to, to line up a time to, to chat with him uh, on his experiences. Cam's a former AFP, Australian Federal Police Officer, um, who spent about 13 years, just shy of 14 years, uh, in that particular uniform, um, including a, a lot of work in the counter-terrorist space, um, developed a, a particular experience in anti-bribery and, cons- and, and uh, corruption uh, through his work in policing. But of interest to us, Cam has also suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've been really interested in talking with Cam about his journey uh, through that uh, and and onto what he's doing now, including his work with an organisation called Fortem, which does some amazing stuff in the the, the first response uh, mental health space for first responders and their family. And we'd, we'd been busy lining up this conversation when Cam offered that maybe we could also include his wife, Sean, in the chat. Yeah, so on the other side of the couch is Sean, uh, had a PR degree was working in government, also in the ACT, where they met in a cafe. Awkward romance comes through caffeine. Mm-hmm. and uh, But that wasn't really her calling, so she changed over. She's always been into yoga and fitness. And in 2014, she started Yoga Mums Fitness and was forced to bring that online uh, through COVID in 2020. Um, she's big into meditation and breathing, the wider benefits of yoga, but, but interestingly, she was trying to deal with not just having children and raising children, but Cam's trauma in the house. And uh, the sort of punctuate the end state here, Cam says that he just would not be around without Sean. And this is why I'm so excited about this conversation. We've spoken to a number of people, um, including clinicians mm. and, and uh, people who are helping uh, folk with um, mental injuries and PTSD. We've also spoken with a bunch of people who have experienced it themselves. It's something that's very close to both of our hearts, uh, given our previous service. But clearly, it's not just the person with the the PTSD that that is suffering or that is part of the solution. And um, having this discussion today uh, with both Cam and Sean about the impacts on family members and loved ones, that inner circle, but also the things that the inner circle can do uh, to help themselves, to help their loved one, and to, to bring the family unit through uh, a situation like PTSD. It's pretty illuminating. One of the interesting things is, you know, I guess you always conventionally think that people that have post-traumatic stress have underlying incidents or events or a series of stressors that get them to this point. 
But Cam's story is a bit different. It's nearly a moment of joy that forces him over into a position where he starts to realise this hypervigilance, um, the maladaptive practices, the irrational behaviours that ultimately lead to the diagnosis. Yeah, and as we're going to talk with him, um, all of this has got to be super confusing. Yeah. You know, you you may have preconceptions about what should bring this on and, and when they're not met, uh, it can add to, to some of the, I guess, confusion and um, disorientation that would, would surround having those sort of feelings. And so we're going to chat with, with Cam about that, how they recognised this was coming on, uh, their path at times rocky towards getting help for both of them, but um, the, the kind of happy ending, you know, how they've overcome with that, the kind of interventions that they've both used to, to help progress through them and the amazing work that they're doing with Fortem. Cam uh, cites Dr. Richard Magtengard, our friend and uh, psychiatrist, mm. and what uh, Richard says frequently, including on our podcast, is how, well, how do we get people to return to normal? It's not just about a treatment cycle. Normal is your whole life. It is your interactions with your significant others, friends, families, colleagues. It is your interaction with kids. And that's the reason why Cam and Sean are sitting next to each other on the lounge today. And talking to us. So really looking forward to this one. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. My name is Ben Pronk and I'm joined, as always, by Tim Curtis. How are you, Tim? G'day, Ben. I'm very well. Good. Hey, as we've mentioned in the introduction, we've got a particularly special episode this week. We're joined by not one, but two outstanding guests, and they're going to provide different perspectives on a pretty important story. Fantastic. Welcome, Cam and Chan. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for coming on. We are really keen to, to get to the sort of crux of this story, but it would be great just to fill in a bit of background. Um, normally, we ask our guests to, to sort of outline how they got to, to where they are today, but we're very interested in how you, as a couple, got to, to where you are today. So how did you meet? Yeah, well, uh, do you want me to take on that? I, I think you should. <laughs> Maybe we can get both perspectives on this as well, whether it was, a, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Cameron and I met about 12 years ago um, and Cameron was working at the local police station near where I was also working for the government at the time in Canberra and um, we started chatting through going to the same coffee shop. So um, yeah, we, we used to just coincidentally go to the same coffee shop and we got chatting and then met for lunch and then it kind of continued from there so it's actually quite a, <laughs> a boring story. No, I actually reckon it's a pretty interesting story because having frequented a number of those Canberra coffee shops in my earlier days and and seen you know equally stunning sort of Canberra um, ladies uh, there as well. I've always wondered how you might approach them. So, Cam, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you you sort of got chatting. Well, I think to, to circle back just a little bit before that, Ben, <laughs> I think it's remarkable we didn't meet at Mooseheads. Because that is, <laughs> that, that's where almost every good relationship in Canberra starts. <laughs> um, and even throughout all of my policing career, I've actually only ever stepped foot in Mooseheads once, uh, and that was with my professional hat on. No, I think 
Um, oh, look, I, I think Sean will probably tell you I'm someone that just enjoys chatting and meeting people and, and talking. And um, if I have a strength, it's probably that. So, um, yeah, I think it was, um, I'd, I'd like to say it was down to my charm, but it was probably down to persistence and, um, and just talking. <laughs> and so, Cam, you're obviously there in a policing capacity in Canberra. Um, what had, would sort of got you to that point in, in terms of your career at that stage? So I've been, uh, at that stage, been in Canberra for about three years. So 2007, um, I started recruit training uh, at the AFP College. Uh, and to get to that point, I, I grew up in the country in Armidale in New South Wales. And, um, left home as soon as I could when I was 18 and went to Sydney and did all those things you do when you're 18 by making, you know, stupid decisions and silly mistakes and got that <laughs> out of my system and um, started running bars and nightclubs. And I didn't really have a, a, a plan, to be honest. Um, so I started doing that, was pretty successful at it, worked for some big outfits and got moved around a bit and then got offered a job to take on a pretty senior role in Melbourne, which I took. Um, and I did that for now another five or six years in Melbourne. But I, I got to the point where I realised that um, I was getting older and everyone else was staying the same age. And I thought, <laughs> this, is, this, is not a, this is not an old person's game. Um, you've either got to be all in and, and have your own place or you, you're sort of destined to... Um, to be one of those crusty old blokes at the end of the bar. And, and no one likes that, the old dude with the ponytail at the corner of the bar that, that's no, sort of been no. there forever, yeah. No, it's it's it just, uh, look, I, I, I can't see myself with a ponytail either, so I probably couldn't have pulled it off. Um, so, and I started to really, um, you know, probably after 9-11, I think I started to really get that, uh, I guess that social conscience about, well, what, what, what's my place? What am I going to do? Um, and so I went back to uni, I did a degree in politics and international relations and specialised in that in, in counterterrorism. And once I sort of was halfway through that, I thought, look, I, I think it's now time to convert this into, uh, into action. And so looked at a few of the different sort of outcomes, you know, through intelligence or security and, and ultimately set on the AFP. I thought the, the variety of things was a, was a real um, key thing for me. And at the time I was, I was engaged to somebody else in Melbourne and, um, and wanted to be able to come back to Melbourne. So that suited that. Um, but the irony is that um, when I got to Canberra, I did my recruit training um, within the first four, that, four, four or five days of being there. Um, they said to us, they sat us all down, all these recruits and, you know, a couple of senior people came in and they said, look, we know you've all been brought here on the promise of going back to, you know, where you come from, Sydney, <laughs> Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever it might be. Um, we've decided that this class is actually going to go to ACT policing and you can expect to be here for about five years. And so, look, a lot of people jacked up and uh, a few of them stormed out and, and I, I sort of had a few conversations and I was, I was probably keen, more keen to go than not. And I, I had a, a very, um, very astute detective sergeant say, look, what's the worst that can happen? You quit your job in Melbourne, we'll pay you for six months, you'll do some cool stuff. And if you don't want to do it after that, well, more fool us, we paid you for, for no outcome. I thought, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So, so I did that and then started working in ACT policing. And the irony is that, um, you know, I sort of took 12 years to go about three feet because I ended up going from throwing drunks out at two in the morning to just collecting them, um, which wasn't, you know, what I thought I'd be doing with this, you know, expertise in high complex geopolitical sort of strategy and risk. But uh, um, someone's got to pick the army jerks up from Mooseheads at uh, two in the morning, and that happened to be me. <laughs> that is an essential service in in Canberra. Yeah, thank you. 
Cam, before we go too much further, could you explain the difference between the Australian Federal Police and the state policing units in terms of roles, tasks, capabilities? You mentioned, of course, the policing in the ACT. We kind of get that there's that aspect to it. But what makes the Federal Police different? Well, I suppose it's, um, it's, it's first of all dealing with the application of Commonwealth legislation rather than state and territory specific. Um, so you're talking about things like, um, you know, sort of organised crime, uh, multinational sort of drug importations and criminality. Um, you're talking about things that exist around uh, cyber security, defence, um, and probably national security is one of the bigger ones as well. So it's really about, uh, I think people people often make this sort of analogous sort of view that it's the AFP is to state police what the FBI is to local police in the state. It's not quite mm-hmm. that, um, but it's, 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 a, it's a reasonable enough distinction for people to sort of understand that it's a bit, it's a bit different in terms of just dealing with those um, crimes against the person, which is typically what you're dealing with in the state police, whereas uh, in the Commonwealth uh, sort of realm, you're probably dealing with uh, things that are not necessarily more complex, but just have different layers of complexity that um, you probably then utilise other arms of government to help um, deal with. And it is mandatory to have an undergraduate degree to um, go to the Federal Police, is that correct? I don't know. Um, I honestly don't know. I think it was, I think at the time it was, you had you had to have one or be undertaking one. I'm not sure that's the case now. Um, I think a lot of organisations have moved on from that metric, which I actually think is a sensible thing. It doesn't, um, just a piece of paper doesn't confer, uh, in my view, um, common sense or ability. Um, but I, I think that may have changed. Yeah, no, it sounds similar. I think Army did a similar thing with officers that either you, you needed to have one, either through ADFRA or otherwise, or be undertaking one. But I'm, I'm, again, I'm not confident there. Okay, so Cam, you've gone from, from poacher to gamekeeper, from, from one side of the nightclub to the other in that period. Sean, what led you to the, the sort of fateful meeting in the, the Canberra coffee shop? Yeah, so I went from um, after school, I was born and bred Canberra and, um, yeah, grew up, did all my schooling, university and everything at Canberra. The usual trend, I did a degree in um, uh, public relations and then carried through to public service. So I was in the public service for a number of years, probably eight years in total. And then when Cam and I met, we, I think we were together only 16 months and then got engaged and then married 12 months after that. And then uh, when our first son was born uh, in 2014, I started really thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. I wasn't happy in the public service. Um, it wasn't suiting my um, what I wanted to do and went and helping people. I was very interested in yoga and fitness and had a very strong practice. So, um, yeah, when I was thinking about going back to work after having our first son, I said to Cam, I think I really I need to do something else. So I ended up going back to the public service, but I took leave without pay to go and do all my yoga studies. And then um, from there started teaching um, while still working in the public service, then had our second baby in 2017. And then when he was um, eight months old, I started my own business. So I left the public service, started Yoga Mums Fitness, um, started teaching, set our garage up as a studio, started teaching classes, 
nights while the while my kids were napping. Um, yeah, just running a safe space for mums. Um, and because I had kids the same age, it was really, really fun. Got to meet a lot of great people. And then, um, yeah, in 2019, went to a bigger studio. Uh, and in 2020, of course, COVID hit. So um, I had to take the business online. So I went through this very um, quick transition of an online studio. And then, yeah, now I've got now Yoga Mums Fitness is strictly online um, because we decided to close the physical studio um, at the end of 2020. And when, yeah, Cam said, I think we need to move because we moved from Canberra to the Sunshine Coast. I was like, well, I can move anywhere. I can take my business anywhere. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that sort of was my path into yoga. And, yeah, it's something that I think of, of all the time. Like it's yoga is part of my life. It's not having, having to be on my mat all the time. It's just how we live. So, That's really impressive, and I'm particularly interested, having coming fr come from essentially a public service background myself with defence, I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body nor in my family, and so starting a business, um, albeit with the, the um, absolute blessing of having Tim there with a bit of experience, but it was a daunting uh, time for me. How did you find it, sort of going from, uh, I assume, probably not a lot of small business experience yourself to, to setting something up? Was it... Um, uh, sort of completely out of left field or did you have mentors or how did you go about the process? Yeah, well, um, I'd probably say my parents were the biggest mentors. My dad ran his own business for 40, 40 plus years. Awesome. So we grew up um, with my dad and my mum being part of the business as well. Um, yeah, with that in our life, it was just what we had to do uh, as kids my brother and sister and I, we all worked in the business to get ourselves through, you know, university at, at different stages. Um, and it was it was always just part of our life. So when I said to my parents, I think I want to start my own business, there was nothing but support mm. there, 100%. Um, and they were like, yeah, do it. You've got to follow your dream. Mm. And for me, you know, um, as a, as a mum with young kids, it was that daunting experience of how am I going to manage it all? But because I was, my business targeted mums, mm. it was, you know, it was this almost level of understanding that, mm. you know, sometimes class is going to run 10 minutes late because I've just got to finish breastfeeding, put my bud down and then I'm there. And, you know, um, as, as my kids got older and um, I was teaching more and more classes, obviously that didn't happen. But at that very early stages, mm. It was that same, um, we all had that same understanding. 
and then it was just then lots of research of other mums in business. And I stumbled across uh, a couple of online training courses. So I did those that's specific for mums um, and starting out businesses, which ran through all of your you know, your finance and your marketing and your Facebook and everything, all the hats of a small business. Um, so that was really good. And then once I went online, I started recruiting help. So recruiting a communications manager and things to help me um, with these aspects of things that I, I couldn't do or I didn't want to do or I wasn't that strong in. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's, it's gone from me doing everything myself to then going, okay, what do I actually love doing? What do I not so much love doing? What can I, you know, um, get help in? So, yeah, it's been a journey, but one that's been supported from the get-go. And, Sean, what is it about yoga that's so important to you? I mean, what traits and attributes, behaviours does yoga bring out of you and others in your experience? Yeah, I think there's so many different aspects of it. And the one thing I love I love about yoga is that it it can suit wherever you are in your life. You know, before kids, I had a really strong practice. I was on the mat. I was strong, like it was physical, very physical. Um, and I, I felt that my meditation was almost through that physical practice. Mm. Um, and then after I had kids, it was softer and it still is. It's much more gentle these days. I really love the restorative yogas now and the yin yogas. But if I don't have time on my mat, then it's the meditation, it's the breathing. I'm a big believer in how we breathe, conscious breathing. Um, and I'm tr like in trying to talk to my kids about that now, like when they're getting frustrated and angry, I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, let's just, where's the breath? Where are you breathing? How are we breathing? Let's breathe through the nose. Um, so it's not, I think the thing I love about the yoga is that it can suit wherever you're at um, and you can bring it into your everyday life. It doesn't have to be just that physical practice. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's also how you choose to, it's like anything, how you choose to treat yourself, how you choose to treat others, um, how you react to things. Um, it's that self-awareness um, that some people have and some people don't um, of, oh, I'm feeling really flustered and some people may not recognise that. But if you do start to recognise it that, then you can go, okay, all right, I need to pause for a moment, take three grounding breaths and then move on to the next thing. Or I may need, you know, meditation or um, whatever, whatever it is. For that individual and yeah there's just so many elements to it which i really really love and so much of what you've just mentioned those things like that awareness of what's happening and and the kind of toolkit to be able to deal with some of those feelings it can be otherwise pretty confronting all of those things are pretty central to what we're keen to talk about next and that's this idea of, of post-traumatic stress disorder and in particular your um collective journey through that. Cam, maybe we could start with yourself. This is a term that I think everyone thinks they know what it means, but it'd be really good to get your take on 
what actually PTSD is or, or how it's defined. But I'm really interested in, was there a moment when you kind of realised, yes, this is what I'm experiencing? Or was it a frog in boiling water type thing that, that crept up on you? Yeah, I think if it's possible to be both those things, I'll, I'll say it is, and I'll explain why. So um, our eldest son was born in July 2014. Um, and up until that point, um, I had never experienced post-traumatic stress. None of the um, the things that, that go along with post-traumatic stress have been part of my my day-to-day or my lexicon. It was just wasn't it wasn't uh, something that resonated with me at all with us. Um, and so I think it was uh, it was an instantaneous thing where we're literally overnight after our son was born, um, I developed uh, a significant um, sort of I guess almost a significant radar to danger, uh, to things like, uh, to stimuli, to, 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 to him crying, um, or to stressful moments where, um, you know, you might perceive something is, is a danger or a risk and it's really not, but because you are in that, um, elevated state of arousal, you simply, your brain, it's, it's not working the way your executive function would otherwise allow you to work. Um, so you're operating at that mammalian level, and you are you're operating on instinct. You're hyper vigilant. Uh, yeah, the, the the hormones that flood your body that say there is danger. It is now time to either fight or or flight. That for me was uh, the first sign of it, and it was instantaneous. It was overnight. Um, but then the frog in boiling water scenario is, well, you're also new parents. You've never done this before, and sleep deprivation as, as we all know with kids is, is something that you deal with and so i guess it, it wasn't as though i woke up the next day and went geez i'm not doing okay i think i've got ptsd but it was i'm not feeling the same way there should be so much joy here and there is but there is also a, a, an unbelievable unrelenting amount of pressure and stress and that just continued and it got worse um i mean when when he was, you know, in the first few weeks, there were there were days that I wouldn't sleep, um, and there would be, you know, me standing next to the cot, making sure he's taking a breath, um, and then on top of that, you would have these other stimuli that would would come into your mind, completely uh, unintended and uninvited, but intrusive thoughts, um, or I think there's they're, they're called ego dystonic thoughts, and they're terrible. Like they are things that you you imagine the worst thing in the world and then you you double that and you put the faces of your loved ones on it that's what an ego dystonic thought is and it's 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 crippling and debilitating and when you have that for the first time or the, the first you know period of time where you start to have those things it's an it, it's like you're assaulting yourself and it's so hard to 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 kind of process like you're having these terrible thoughts about people dying or people being hurt or you hurting people when you mm-hmm. you have of course no intention of mm-hmm. doing that and of course you do everything to make sure that they're not going to be hurt but your brain is not allowing you to understand or operate in the way that it should be operating and so these things become part of your every day and um and that was our journey for probably seven to eight years Jeez.
And were you able, like, did you feel you were able to, to talk to someone about this or was there, uh, did you feel there's a stigma about admitting this or did you feel like I just need to suck it up or how, how did you go in terms of that recognition and, and the initial steps of, of coming to terms with, with what was happening? Yeah, I think there's two things there. There's family and professional. So, um, I mean, Sean and I talked about it long before I even thought about talking about it uh, at work. Um, and like a, a, a number of guests that you've had uh, on, on the podcast and other people have spoken publicly, you you inherently, and I think it's a probably a, a male biological response as well, but you inherently associate saying this is not going okay with weakness and it flies contrary to your uh, to your ego, but it also flies contrary to your job. I mean, for you guys in the in 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 the regiment in the special forces environment, like um, that that admission of being fallible, well, that might lead others to think that when when you're in theatre and you 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 presented with danger, that you're going to be the, the link in the chain that breaks. And likewise, for me in in policing, I think that um, a, a lot of people have a view uh, still today. I think that putting their hand up. Um, is going to be detrimental to their career because you know you might have your your, your firearm or your access to to accoutrements taken away from you, and that does happen happen to me. Um, but I think it's it's less that it's the stigma, it's the view of people um, in that environment. Uh, and in my experience, um, I think it's a it's a cultural it's, it's an enduring cultural legacy um, that a lot of people have worked pretty hard to try and. Uh, shape and augment, um, but I I don't think it's there to be mm. honest, and I don't think it will be there for another generation. Um, this this is a generational challenge, and I think defence is finding a similar thing. But I think defence is probably about half a decade to a decade ahead of uh, where law enforcement and other emergency services might be. I do think defence is getting better from from my experience. It's always I've found it um, peculiar that the difference in terms of attitudes towards mental versus physical injuries. I mean, everything you've described, if you just inserted a physical mechanism as the injury, someone does their ACL, their knee's a bit iffy, they need to have some rehab. No one thinks, oh, I don't want to go out on patrol with that guy or girl because their knee may go because <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty weak. And yet, you know, with the, the mental side, um, that stigma can creep in. But I think you are right. I think uh, the more awareness we get and the more people who are willing to share their stories, which is why we're so grateful to you both for, for doing this. It can help to demystify some of, of what's going on and to increase the recognition that this is something that we can deal with with um, different forms of treatment. And, and, and the key thing for me, I, I, I very strongly, when I talk to people like this um, and people ask about things, I always tell them I've, I've been injured at work. Um, I don't look at this and say, well, I'm a less complete human being. I have an inherent um, uh, deficiency that has led to this. Um, I look at this and I say, okay, I've been injured at work. Yeah, it's a long-term injury. It, it's probably a lifetime injury, um, but it's not something that's insurmountable. It is, it is something that is absolutely uh, able to be treated and managed. Uh, I'm proof of that. And it's, it's not easy. I'm not going to say it's, it's easy. I mean, um, there's there's a lot of things that go into into being where I guess both of us are at today. Um, there have been significant steps along the way, but for me, um, there is a 
there is a conscious part of me that when I think about the situation I'm in and I think about talking to other people about it, for me, almost demystifying it in a way by calling it out as an injury, I think helps some people who might um, have that that inbuilt perception that it's, um, you know, to, to use in inverted commas mental issues, I think people use that as a bit of a catch-all for so many different things. Uh, and, and what we know about people that have post-traumatic stress is they come from every single sort of um, psychological background you can imagine. There's not one um, sort of precondition for any person to get post-traumatic stress. Like it can be from anyone that's had any kind of upbringing. It doesn't matter who you are. It's just, it's an occurrence and it happens. It's just like being on the footy field and being tackled and breaking your leg. If you weren't in that play at the time, you wouldn't have broken your leg, but somebody did. And that's for me, the message I'm really, really keen on sharing with people is that if you treat it like an injury, because that's what it is, you're more likely to A, get help and B, understand the tools you need to repair the injury. If you don't, it's just something that rattles around your head for the rest of your life. And that's not good for anyone. No, exactly. You've got to, well, we keep saying get active in your own rescue, but just like a physical injury, you kind of got to do your rehab. Um, all those physios out there who tried to treat me, I apologise, I never did, but that's why I've still got sort of clicks and pains, but yeah. So, Cam, you would think that someone who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, there'd be a clear underlying trauma or series of stressors. As you reflect, was there any one incident or series of incidents beyond the birth of your boy or, or was it you know, nearly undiagnosable, indiagnosable? Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a, the thing I quite often, not wrestle with, but I think about quite often because um, it wasn't particularly the, um, our, our son's birth. That, that was just the moment that uh, it brought things into focus for me. So everything up mm. until that point was completely out of focus. So um, I started... Um, policing in Canberra in 2007. Um, and I did that until 2012 or late 11, I can't remember. Um, but the majority of that was in the community, either doing general duties or investigations. Um, and then at one point, um, working in an um, investigations team, um, looking at child sex offenders mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. management of registered child sex offenders in Canberra. Um, but just through bad bad luck. Um, I dealt with through that career in either investigations or general duties, um, uh, a number of pretty significant and traumatic things involving kids. Um, and, you know, like I said, I think, you know, trigger warning to anyone that, that sort of is listening. Um, some of those were sudden infant deaths. Some of those were um, the removal of children from families. Um, yet others were child sex offences. Um, and of course, at the time you, um, you, you deal with those things with professionalism and particularly for families that have lost a child. Um, I mean, you don't know without having kids mm. the impact, but you can be empathetic and, you know, for me, um, yeah, I, I look back on those things and some of the, um, uh, the, the awful routine administrative tasks that go along with a a death or a coronial matter and you, you run them up against somebody's bereavement. They're just, they're just awful. Mm. Um, like you have to take children away from families and say, look, it's time to let go. Like those things are even now thinking about it. It's just, it, I don't know. Look, it, it's, it's incredibly traumatic, but 
for me, um, at the time, I, I dealt with those things, as I said, just as professionally as I could. And um, I didn't really park them anywhere. Well, sorry, I just parked them, I guess, in my in my consciousness mm. uh, until we had kids. And then, and then literally where our eldest was born, he was an emergency C-section, which um, oh, is fine. Chan's fine. So <laughs> it was an emergency, but it was one of those hospital emergencies that probably not an emergency. But anyway, he was born in the delivery suite or the operating suite, which is a floor above where, you know, on at least two occasions I had to take deceased children away from their parents. Mm. So there's a there's that real um, geographical nexus to that particular trauma. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's it, it's not one thing. It's a combination of things. And give you an example. I mean, it's just it just relates to kids. The very first job that I ever went to in, in policing, um, I was in a car with two other more senior general duties guys. We got a call to go to a, a car accident out on a road, sort of rural Canberra. Um, in the south we arrived there and the fireys and the ambos were already there and what had happened was um we'd been told it was a car into a tree there was a passenger in, in the car uh what we found when we got there though was car had hit the tree glanced the tree and gone down hit an embankment uh, but what we didn't realize and what we couldn't have known until we got there is that the person did it deliberately um to to try and end their own life and um they'd obviously not succeeded um, so they cut their own throat. And I remember getting down to the car and seeing the inside of the car covered in what, what I thought was red paint. Mm. And it was that sort of dislocation, dislocation of your consciousness. So I was like, it took me a second to catch up. Mm. Uh, and I was like, oh, 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 right. And, and this person survived. But that's the first day on the job. And I look back at it now and it doesn't, doesn't make me heave. It doesn't make me get sad. It doesn't really do anything to me. It, just, it was just an occurrence. Um, but you know, had there been kids involved in that, that would be, I, I imagine, a remarkably different sort of scene for me. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. We, through our resilience work, have done a, a number of engagements with police forces across the state. And one of the statistics that my brother um, often leads with is the fact that uh, psychologists talk about these lifetime traumatic incidents, LTIs, I think, uh, is the term they use. And the average person has half a dozen, a dozen throughout their life. The average police officer gets something like 200 a year. And I've, I've murdered the statistics, but it's that sort of quanta. And it becomes normalised. It, Like you said, it gets parked and we, we get on with the next day and we don't think it's um, a, a massive thing. But those kind of incidents accumulate. And, and unless we're processing and able uh, or have those mechanisms, those tools to deal with them, um, they do. They, they can sneak up. Um, Sean, your perspective. So there's a lot going on at this point in your life. You're looking at sort of career transition. You've obviously had a child. Things are busy. Did you notice um, sort of uh, things going differently with, with Cam before he spoke to you about this? How did, how did you become aware that, that something was starting to manifest? Yeah, um, well, like Cam said, we, sleep deprivation 
um, was certainly on <laughs> our card. <laughs> yep. Our little guy didn't think much. Um, but, yeah, I did know, start to notice some things happening with Cam. So all of a sudden, um, you know, Emerson had his first rash and Cam was like, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, miniature cockle. We've got to get him to hospital. And I'm like, it's just a rash. It's going to be okay. Like, I'm sure every parent has had that experience. Especially <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, We've been there. But, yeah. It, um, and, and then for the second one, it's like, oh, mate, you'll, you'll check it out. <laughs> But everything was just really heightened, um, more so than normal. Um, other things that would occur is if once Cam had returned to work, uh, like most of the time my phone was on silent, if I didn't answer the phone, Cam would call and call and call and call. And if I didn't answer after that, he'd call my parents and go, where's Sean? Where's, mm. uh, where's Emerson? And then after that, he'd race home only to find us asleep, you know, mm. yes, and I'd left my phone out in the kitchen or whatever it was. Um, but that, was, that would happen on a very regular, um, very regularly. Uh, things like um, uh, when we started sleep training. So um, our youngest, uh, sorry, our eldest was, like I said, terrible sleeper. So about that eight to 10 months, we had to start sleep training. And it was, I was so torn between being there for Emerson and being that supporting mum while trying to get our son to sleep in his cot when Cam was out in the corridor pacing up and down, hyperventilating, really, really um, anxious. He'd have headphones on or he'd be laying down like in the furthest point from our house, curled up in a ball, headphones on, like pillow over his ears because the the thought of letting Emerson just cry a little bit was so destroying for him. Mm. Um, So I was there trying to be there for him, trying to be there for Emerson, but then going, well, where's my support? I've got, Mm. I'm doing this all on my own. Um, And then that would start arguments because Mm. I'd be like, well, (laughs) can't you support me? Um, So, yeah, and anyone who has been through that with their kids know that it's not an easy process um so yeah all these little things and then um if while I was starting to get the business up and running um Cameron would be basically hovering around me just not letting me work not letting me do what I needed to do um because he he needed that support but at the time I didn't realize and at the time I was just it was it caused a lot of frustration um and yeah so all these little things started to accumulate then all of a sudden um Cameron's career was going so well throughout his policing career and then it just plateaued it just Mm. stopped um there was little drive for him to to continue to apply for um, higher positions um, that he'd have good days and bad days 
the bad days would end in him coming home and self-medicating with alcohol. I didn't know whether I would have to walk on eggshells that day or whether I'd be putting my husband who drank too much to bed that night just so he could actually sleep. Um, he was using the alcohol to sleep. Um, so, and he'd just be passed out. Plus also looking after a little one or, you know, pregnant with our second. Um, so all of these little things started to accumulate and everyone kept asking, oh, are you guys okay? And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Cause we hid it for so long. Mm. And so, um, when I finally started seeing a psychologist, she was like, yeah, you flexed your fine muscle a lot. Like, <laughs> um, because yeah, for six years we hid it. We hid it mm. for so long. Sean, you, you're saying you hit it. Um, like from my perspective, it sounds like there's so many new things going on and, and so many additional stressors. Was it a matter of you, you knew something was wrong and you were hiding it? Or was it a matter of thinking, well, this could be because of the baby or the new business or the transition or just any number of things? I, I think we knew. I think, well, I think we were figuring it out. Yeah. I think we actually knew because... It was at a stage where Cam was trying to work it out for himself, trying to talk to people at work, but people at work were like, oh, don't speak too loudly about that. <laughs> um, and I think at one stage you actually wrote down to try and build a case for Cam to go and see a psychologist through work. Um, he had to write down what he'd been experiencing and he was told to rewrite it and not go into too much detail. Um, And then so Cam started seeing a psychologist when we had our second son um, because the same patterns occurred um, with our second son as well. Um, And But it wasn't diagnosed as PTSD at that point. Um, And, I mean, before that you'd seen a couple of counsellors. Yeah, I, I, I sort of chatted in general terms and I... I've been really careful to make sure that when I spoke to people at work, I, was, I guess I was fortunate that I had a couple of bosses uh, that I sort of counted um, as people that I could confide in as well, which I think if you didn't have that, it would be a really, really tough road. But um, I sort of confided in them and said, look, these things are going on. Um, I, I just I'd like a bit of help. Um, and so the, the, the sort of go-to at the time was that sort of employee assistance program, which for most government agencies is, is, is outsourced and it's, you know, you call up and they you know, arrange a time, you sit down and have a chat to a counsellor. Um, and that, that was okay. Um, but I, I, never, I never really felt like I was in the, the right setting to say, look, here's what's going on. I, in fact, there was one counsellor I had, a lovely, lovely man, but I... I felt as though if I sort of unburdened myself onto him, he'd be the one ending up with counselling because it was you, you, sort of, you, yeah. you feel as though you you don't want to. And that's the other thing you don't want to burden other people. And for Sean, Sean used to hate this. I used to deliberately not share some things, not because I didn't want to, not because I was trying to be secretive, but because I didn't want her to suffer the same. Um, response, reaction, arousal that I knew I would have to the same stimulus. But then Sean's response was, well, that's bullshit. Like, if I don't know what's going on, I can't help. And in hindsight, of course, that's 
absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like Cam said, he was worried about not transferring that um, sort of trauma onto me. But and sadly, not so much the trauma, but the anxiety was transferred onto me. Mm-hmm. So I started um, with Cam's calling and calling, calling, calling um, when he was in counterterrorism, especially around the times of few incidences happening around Australia. Cam would call me and go, "Do not go out today. Like, just don't go out." And I'd be like, what? What? "Why? I've got two kids. I need to get out of the house." And yeah. it's just like don't go out so then that started transferring mm-hmm. onto me and i started becoming anxious about leaving the house and i started having irrational thoughts about leaving the house mm-hmm. so if i could find any excuse not to leave the house i would and that's at the point where i went no something's not right with me now mm-hmm. um and it was at that point that I actually said to Cam, I said, is there anyone at work like that helps families? Like, can they send me in the right direction of getting help? And they gave Cam a piece of paper with a number on it for a family counsellor. And I just went, that's not what I need. Like I need something. I mean, thank you, but no. Um, so I ended, we, we've been paying for my own psychologist mm-hmm. um, and yeah, to get the help that I needed to overcome my anxiety and um, overcome processing everything for myself uh, over the last sort of six years. So I was able to support Cameron more and then uh, both of us be able to support each other throughout this journey, especially when it came to, you know, June 2020 when we decided, no, Cam cannot go back to work. It's <laughs> it's at that point now where it's where our marriage was very much at a point where it was one or the other, like something had to give and it sads, saddens me to think that we got to that point but, it was mm-hmm. the PTSD was ruling our life. It was ruling very major decisions, um, but also ruling us in not making decisions as well. You know, um, like little things, like we wanted to buy another house, but we could never, we could never do it. We could never get there. We could never get, um, you know, ourselves across that line. Um, we wanted a third baby and we couldn't because Cam was worried about how he would react with the sleepless nights again and, um, yeah, what that would bring up for us a third time. Mm. Um, So all these big life decisions were dictated by what the PTSD would do, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, And so it was at that point where I was like, something has to give because we can't keep living our life like this this is not this is not fair for either one of us or our children um because at the end of the what well, at the end of the day our kids don't know Cameron mm. without um without PTSD without mm. um so what effect is this having on them now uh so these are all these questions that we're starting to to ask ourselves um and yeah just because there's got to be 
more, but we weren't willing to give up on each other. Mm. So, yeah, that's when Cam went, no, I can't go back to work. Yeah, like it was literally, a, I think that weekend actually, it sort of it ties in a couple of things neatly. I'll be happy to share mm. it. Um, but the, the, the big thing for us was about having three kids. Um, and we had obviously had our oldest and then, and then our second son. And then because Shana didn't start the business, we said, okay, we, we've got to give that some space to run and um, we want to, you know, see, see Sean sort of really thrive in that. And so we gave that a, a couple of years and then, and we started talking again about a baby and um, yeah, I mean, I, I inherently and very instinctively knew that would be, a, a, an incredible challenge for me. Um, it wasn't a lack of desire and it was never that. It was, it was that real fervent desire to, to, to grow a family uh, knowing that um, it was like touching the flame. Like it was, it was highly likely to trigger me into, you know, patterns that I knew that I'd been uh, exposed to in the past and, and consequently had then exposed Sean and our then two sons to. Uh, and that was a big burden to, to actually carry. And so this particular uh, Friday in June, we were in bed talking about it and I sort of, I, I gave myself a bit of a self-talk and I just said, can you just wake up to yourself? Like, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, you'll, you'll have another child, it'll be amazing, you'll grow your family, you'll get past this, you're, you're going to be okay. And so I said, Sean, right, let's do it. Let's let's do it. And you know, um, you know, we both overjoyed. Um, went to sleep, going, yep, okay, this is our next step. And then uh, Saturday morning, I woke up um, in the middle of a panic attack. We'd never had one before. I was sweating. Um, I I had woken up from a dream where um, there was an unthinkable outcome with our third child, um, and I was yeah, I was I was utterly immobilised with fear uh, and trepidation and, and, and anticipatory grief. It was so strange. And so, you know, that weekend, you know, we, we both at one point packed bags and said, all right, we need to, we need to have space to work this out or, you know, figure out what the next steps are for us separately or apart or together. And however it worked, we just, we kept on sort of rolling back to the pendulum kept on coming back to the middle where, we, we stuck it out and Sunday afternoon I called my boss and I said, look, this is what's going in, going on. I, I won't be in the office tomorrow. And um, nine o'clock the next day I went to my GP and I spent about 45 minutes just telling him what was going on. And, um, and I think for me, the gravity of post-traumatic stress, it really only hit me at that moment because I, I saw in his face the look of somebody who was, horrified to hear of something happening to somebody else. And I never really, you know, like with you, with your spouse or someone that's intimate in your, in your life, um, you, you know what their tells are, you, you can read them, but somebody who's sort of abstract to that, you share something with them and you say, this is what's going on. And then they stop and they have to collect their own thoughts for a minute or two before they can talk to you. It kind of, it sets you up to understand how, much gravity there was or there is in the situation. And so um, I, I never went back to the AFP after that.
you just wait here at the bar while I go outside and go around the corner and get our car. We'll leave this old town behind by some beers, right down south till dawn. Or we can cruise down along the coast and maybe park down by the swell. Tune in to the big US radio, eighteen By this stage, you hadn't yet had a formal diagnosis of PTSD, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, that's right, yeah. yeah. But it, it sort of sounds like you've recognised, no, there is definitely something here. You've both been receiving, I guess, separate sort of uh, support and treatment to a greater or lesser extent, but then that moment where you've, you've said, no, it's not, not going to, it's, as Sean said, it's, it's the family or the job, um, you've made the de- what must have been an incredibly tough decision to um, not return to, to AFP. What what happened from them, from the, from the GP's office? Was there a referral to a psych that led to a diagnosis and uh, sort of interventions? Yeah, well, you just remind me, so let, let me circle back to when, after Aston, our second son was born, um, I, through the AFP, um, they had a program at the time of um, early intervention. So uh, they paid for, I think it was about 10 session, sessions with, with the psychologist. Um, and that was great. That that was that was fantastic. We can't fault them for having that opportunity for people to actually, it's, you know, the idea that the term of it obviously speaks to what it is, early intervention. You, you identify things, you try and catch them and you try and set people up to, to deal with things better. And that's fantastic. And I applaud them for doing that. Um, but the irony with that was that chatting to that particular psychologist, um, <laughs> I, uh, I knew that I didn't want for her to go back to the other thing and say, look, um, he's cooked, um, you know, end of, end of, end, end of mm. game. So I, I think I spoke to her in terms of, um, I, I guess, self-censoring everything. So it looked like I was just having a hard time rather than dealing with PTSD because I didn't want for somebody that the AFP was paying to get back to the AFP and say, yeah, look, things aren't looking good. Because then for me, I'm like, well, I've just got a, another child. I'm trying to get my career up you know, kickstart. Um, I'm looking for some overseas postings. They're not going to send me overseas if they think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm suffering from PTSD. And, and so I think that probably set me up to, uh, you know, I won't even say manfully battle through something because it was just stupid. I, I should have been at the time saying, you know, this is, I should have been starting the things I started two years later then. But anyway, after the, after seeing my GP and he sent me up with a psychologist and, um, put me on medication and that was a big, big step for me. I, um, you know, despite being very comfortable in using the, the, the lexicon of it being an injury, um, I looked at the idea of taking an antidepressant as a real uh, personal failing. Uh, and I, I didn't look at it as what its intent is, which is to, um, you know, give the, give the body time and space to re-regulate so that in um, other treatment modalities like through psychiatry or through psychology or through mindfulness exercise, whatever you, you have the ability to unpack things without a, a um, without a, a real uh, triggering stimulus. So it took me about a month, I think, to actually start taking the medication. I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't want to do it to be honest. Uh, but then I, I recognized that um, just sitting at home, um, I wasn't changing things up. I wasn't really 
Um, I wasn't really giving myself every chance. And so I started taking medication. Um, I started visiting the gym. Um, I started speaking to a psychologist, um, a guy named Paul North in Canberra, who I'll absolutely unshamedly give a plug to because he, um, you know, he's probably someone that's certainly saved our marriage, if not my life. Um, and I think when you spoke to Mark Wales about his experiences and the doctor said, look, you're more, uh, more reptile and human mm-hmm. at the moment, um, it resonates with me so much because speaking to Paul, the first couple of sessions that we, um, we had, we spoke about the, the physicality of the brain. We didn't talk about how I was feeling. He said, right, let's understand the playing field that we're on. Um, let's understand how you're dealing with stress and then let's see what the response is from a, on a, on a sort of a, a cellular level. Um, and exactly that same thing. Most of, most of my ability to use my executive function was limited to very simple tasks, things that didn't cause stress or anxiety. Everything else, I was, I was operating as that reptile. Um, everything was um, fight or flight. Everything was, we've got to get this um, resolved immediately. And that dump of, you know, sort of adrenaline and that, that sort of come down of cortisol, like it was just, it was relentless. And it was actually just as bad as being at work, if not worse, when I wasn't actually at work, I was just at home, uh, you know, convalescing for want of a better term, sort of trying to rebuild my relationship with my kids and my wife. Um, but slowly through working with Paul, we, I, I really, the one thing about that, that I loved about it was coming from a policing or a law enforcement background, I'd imagine similarly from a, from a service background for, for people in the military, um, you, you kind of like evidence and structure and certainty. Mm. And so um, rather than talking about, you know, how the clouds make you feel and, you know, what music sort of makes your heart sing, we were being, we, we were being brutal about it. We were talking about the hard edges of, of, of post-traumatic stress and, you know, how things affect you and what you're doing at the time something is triggering you is not you. It's your brain operating the way it's intended to operate, but it's simply because you haven't processed or dealt with some of the stuff that's going on or that's gone on in your life or in your career. Let's start to work on those things and then let's see how you can start to re sort of regulate your own emotive state. And that, that's been life-changing for us. And I think that is a really important level of understanding, um, certainly in our work with with anyone experiencing stressors, but I think particularly, as you've said, the the sort of military first response background, maybe even it's a, a male thing as well, but having that understanding that, that this isn't some ethereal, you know, sit cross-legged and, and let the world in type thing. No, this is a, actually a way of working with your brain uh, to, to overcome some of those natural amygdala-driven stress responses, um, it can make it seem a lot more accessible and make it seem a lot more like, you know, a physical injury rehab for your, your brain as opposed to, to a limb. But, Sean, of course, you've come from a background in yoga where a lot of this stuff that Cam's talking about is probably second nature or at least resonates a lot with a lot of your practice. Um, did you find that, that a lot of those things started to click when, when uh, Cameron started having these discussions and understanding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just seeing the transformation in Cameron as well, which was um, great, but it was it was also lovely for 
someone else to tell him that meditation is a good idea and physical ex, um, activity is a good idea. Um, I felt like a bit of a broken record and he'd just look at me blankly and go, uh-huh. Because, again, he was in that state where he could not take anything else on, um, you know, even the simple... Um, uh, well, no, it's not simple, actually. I was going to say the simple act of meditation. It may seem simple, but it's mm. not, mm. Um, especially someone who is in that heightened state. Mm. Um, and we both were, to be honest. You know, here I was going to class teaching women how all about self-care and, um, you know, looking after themselves. And I certainly went through a stage of not doing that for myself. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, so I think seeing cam just start those little things and seeing sort of the wall start to come down and him going okay i'm ready to talk to our family now in a really calm way um was it was that that moment of me going okay we're on the right path now finally um and then being able to open up to our families and say, look, guys, this is what's been going on. And for especially my mom and dad just going, yep, we've noticed, <laughs> you know, we've noticed over the last seven years. Um, but I kept saying and we kept saying we're fine. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that was the start of the next journey for us. Before we, we sort of talk about this next journey, Sean, if you're comfortable sharing, you you sort of you've gone through this process and you've described sort of nights where where Cameron had self medicate and and potentially you know the these sort of maladaptive coping mechanisms. Were there periods of sort of resentment or um, did you feel sort of things were unfair or how did you sort of adjust and adapt to this change in the person you love um, across that period, particularly before you'd gotten your heads around this diagnosis and some of the tools that could help get you to to the point you are now? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Um, you know, Cam and I, when we met, we were both pretty motivated to to do things um you know we 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 made stuff happen um an example is we built a house and got married in the same year um you know which is is huge but we just we had that motivation as a couple when we noticed um the shift in Cameron after our eldest was born I noticed that things started to like we talked about, just sort of plateau. Um, and I started feeling, um, at first it was I've just got to, you know, I'm in the trenches with children and babies. Then over a period of time, this went on for a couple of years where Cam would be so low that 
you know, I'd have to talk him up every night of, no, you are a good dad. No, you are a good person. Like, mm-hmm. you are good at your job. And it, it was it was so repetitive and I, I honestly got exhausted. I was, I was exhausted because I was looking after children and I was looking after my husband, but no one was looking after me. Like no one was asking how I was. No one was, um, yeah, no one was looking out for how it was affecting me. And I didn't know at the time as well. I just, I was this martyr of like, no, I can do this. Yes, I can look after my kids. I can run a business. I can get my husband. All I wanted to do was save my husband. At the end of the day, that's what my business turned into. I've got to save him. I've got to get him out of the AFP so I can save him. And it's it still tears me up. But that's, that's the mindset that I ended up with. And then my health started deteriorating and I ended up, um, I've got an autoimmune condition and it was, I still to, to, to this day believe it was triggered because of the amount of stress we were under. Mm. You know, it wasn't just Cam that was running at this high levels mm. of stress. We both were. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if, resentment is the right word but it it was just this I had to save him because I felt like no one else was going to save us Mm -hmm. no one else was going to do it so I had to do it and I took that on for myself Mm. um but at the point it got to a point like I said that something had to give um because I had run I was not I had nothing I had nothing left to 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 give I had nothing left I was skin and bone I was I had drained all my resources physically mentally emotionally everything um and so I'll never forget um the night that after COVID hit and it's as awful of as it was to go through that and um the experiences everyone had around the world it actually couldn't have come at a better time for us um, because I, it was the first time I stopped in about three years and just, I didn't realize that my body needed it at the time. And uh, I was working through pain. I had pain all over my body for quite a while trying to figure out what was going on. And um, it wasn't until yeah, that time, that first lockdown, that first Australia-wide mandatory lockdown, um, that I actually started feeling good for the first time. I started mm. feeling, oh, I, I was concentrating on me. I had mm. a, I was practicing yoga every day. I was doing my strength work. I was, um, we were eating exceptionally well. And um, it was the first time that I'd gone, oh, actually all my pain had started to settle down. And I could see things a little bit more clearly um, and starting to get sort of our more help for myself as well with the psychologist. Um, and Cam, you know, slowed down a little bit at work as well. Um, so that gave us that time to really consider what we wanted and that's when the conversations about a third baby started. Um, and then... 
once we were allowed to reopen the studio, that first day that I reopened the studio, I was so excited to finally have face-to-face classes again, have all the women um, back in the studio. The next day I woke up and I couldn't walk. Mm. I couldn't get out of bed. I was riddled in pain. And I, I just looked at Cam and Cam again was probably the only one really understood what was going on. And he's just like, okay, again, not only with him, but for me as well, something had to give because both of us were running on uh, adrenaline, Mm. fight, um, flight, flight. We're both in that state for so long. Cameron was experiencing it from his PTSD and I was experiencing it because I was like, okay, I don't know who's going to walk through the door today, whether Cam's going to be happy because he had a great day at work or whether we, you know, he's going to hit the bottle of scotch soon or whether I had to walk on eggshells or what I, or did I have to, what, how did I have to pick him up today? Um, and yeah, so it was, I was exhausted. I was exhausted. I mean, you've you've run this really ugly marathon with all of this friction, all of this pressure. You're trying to defend, you know, this is normal. We kind of need to close it off to the rest of the world and just keep it to ourselves. It's affecting you physically. It's affecting you mentally. It's affecting your relationship, the relationship with your kids, your relationship into work, the relationship into family and friends. So others don't need to run this horrible marathon. What would be the one or two things that you should have done harder, earlier or better? Oh, look, I could talk about this for hours. I'm, I'm extremely motivated and passionate about this. I think this, the, the two things I'd say first are if you want to have a, um, a functioning exemplary emergency services workforce, train your people so that they can leave you in about 10 years. Get the best out of them, train them, get them while they're really motivated and passionate to make a difference. And then say, fantastic, let's start a degree at like year seven, let's do some other training so you can go do something different and you can serve the community another way. And that's not to say that people that do this full time have got the wrong choice, by no means at all. But what I'm trying to, by by way of saying that and by way of explanation, what I mean is it's not normal, like you mentioned before, Ben, like it's not normal that the average person that, you know, works, you know, insert job here Mm. has between six and 10 traumatic life incidents, you know, spousal, child, family, witnessing something or whatever. And then the average police officer has, yeah, you're right, the statistics, I butcher them as well, but, you know, a few hundred tons yeah. or a year or whatever it is. It's not normal. Um, so if you're a 30-year police officer, um, let's assume you spent some time in the back room somewhere for, um, you know, for some transgressions or because you've, you know, had to do some admin or something, you've still got 25 years of, of interfacing with with trauma. Um, and you're, you're asked to make good judgments every single day because other people have made bad judgments. And so your life is about uh, trying to write the pendulum back into the middle. And, and that's all you do. And you do it. And Sean reminded me about something today. You do it as a police officer. You do it when you're not at work. Um, I mean, I came across, I came across a stolen car one day that people have been looking for, you know, a couple of weeks with a couple of people in it. I think, I can't remember when one was escaped from 
the local um, lockup or something. I can't remember. But, you know, found them in the middle of a shopping centre and followed them around and then, you know, called it in and stood in front of their car while the, while the local blokes approached in their car and they turned their lights and signs on and spooked these two and they nearly ran me over. But, you know, it's, it's just... I don't say that because it's of note to me. It's just that this is every day for mm. anyone who's a police officer or a fiery, you know, you come across somebody who's sick or an ambo, likewise, it's, it's relentless. And I think the one big thing that's different um, in, the, in the context of that emergency services versus defence, and I'll talk about Fordham Australia in a moment, but when you've got that defence um, sort of hat on, if you're a, you know, a serving member of defence and you're in theatre, you're there for four to six months and for that entire period of time 24 hours a day you're expecting someone's going to try and kill you which is i can't imagine being in that situation and i've never i've never had to deal with that but the way that somebody deals with the stresses that come from that is probably going to be different than somebody who deals with it where you're not expecting someone to kill you every day when you're a police officer but you literally don't know what's going to happen the next time the radio crackles into life like the first job i ever attended you know He's hoping for like a, a shoplifter or, you know, a, a cheeky burglary or something like that. He's somebody who's tried to take their own life and, and ended up in the situation they're in. Another one that occurred to me, I, I actually had one of those moments where I, I sort of said to myself, literally, what am I doing with my life? I was an on-call member one night working um, in, in the national security environment. And I had a phone call and I said, oh, we need you to identify somebody. Um, we've got a picture. Can you look through the AFP databases or indices? And, and have a look and I said sure and they sent me a picture of this person but the person they were trying to identify was actually a bomber and because they were wearing a suicide belt they'd blown their head off and it was just a picture of this head and they said oh can you can see if you can identify who this person is and it, I remember it's like two o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there going what what, what is it I do like this is not normal mm. like everyone else is sleeping or at moose heads and I'm looking at severed heads so I think for me, it's about identifying and understanding that if you want to have a long-term career in policing and emergency services, you've got to get the settings right at the start. Um, I mean, one of the things when I was at recruit training college, um, they introduced us to the idea of the active shooter scenario. And they did that by putting us in a room and putting on a, a video um, of the Columbine massacre, um, complete the sound and that was it. And I still think about that now. I think that's not, that's not how to train somebody. Yeah. You've got to understand risk. You've got to understand loss. You've got to understand stuff that people might not want to know about. But I'm not sure that's how you should do it. Um, so I guess that's the first thing I think training people so they can leave, um, which sounds a bit um, sort of oxymoronic when you're trying to recruit somebody. But I think in this kind of environment, you're actually going to do a better service to them and ultimately to yourself. And the second thing is there's got to be more assistance for people that work in the emergency services realm. And I'll make the distinction again between defence and emergency services, not because defence don't have uh, their own special needs, they do. Um, but by virtue of the fact you have eight different jurisdictions with policing and fire and emergency, um, or sorry, paramedicine, you have eight different sets of conduct, eight different sets of policies and procedures, eight different sets of legislation that relate to these people. It's a patchwork if there ever was one. And that makes it incredibly difficult for there to be parity across different jurisdictions. Um, so if you're a police officer in New South Wales 
as opposed to a police officer in Victoria or WA, what's going to happen to you if you get injured at work is going to be completely different. So the settings are going to be different. Um, the, the entitlements are going to be different. And so you get this, um, this sort of patchwork of, of responses and experiences, which doesn't really help everybody understand what the challenges are. Hmm. And so Fordham Australia, which Sean and I are both ambassadors for, was started in 2019 by, um, by among others, um, the co-founders of Soldier On, John Bale and his wife, Danielle. Mm-hmm. And they saw the model of Soldier On about um, uh, identifying uh, those challenges for, for defence men and women around um, transition into the private sector out of, out of defence, uh, around mental health and wellbeing. And they saw that in the emergency services field. And so they said, well, we're going to do something about it. And I think for me, uh, why I've got such a, a passion for sharing my experiences is because Soldier on, uh, sorry, Fordham are now starting to reach a much bigger audience. It's not just about policing. It's about anyone that's in that sort of that that, that client-facing almost uh, environment where there is risk of post-traumatic stress or, or mental or moral injury. Um, I think that the, the importance of Fordham can't be understated. There's at least six times the number of serving emergency services men, men and women uh, as there are defence men and women. Um, and then you've probably got the same number again that have recently transitioned in the last five years. So you've got a massive cohort of, you know, well in excess of half a million Australians who are current or most recently former um, first responders. And not every one of them is okay. Not every one of them is going to be okay. Not every one of them is going to to get, you know, five years down the track and go, yeah, things are great. It might be a critical life event like it was for us. Um, I mean, it wouldn't have made any difference if I quit policing three or four years before our kids were born. Mm. I'd still be in the same situation. Um, and then the question then becomes, well, who's there to look after you when that happens? And it's not about it's not about somebody being there to hand stuff out to you. It's about how do you get the settings right so that people are feel empowered to uh, share what's going on and feel empowered to get better. And I know it might sound a bit sort of strange, but if no one's there recognising that what you have is a problem, it doesn't really empower you to get better because people aren't recognising that there's something going on. And that's fundamentally a, an issue that I think we need to, to challenge. And so um, I, I'm a big proponent for, um, for for the idea that once the current inquiries into defence in relation to defence suicides and the current Royal Commission and the um, and the, the, the recently announced uh, Commissioner for, uh, for Defence in relation to that, I'm really... I'm a very strong advocate for that to be something that um, that happens in the emergency services space, uh, because we have we have an undercurrent of psychological injury um, within the AFP, and I know it from my own experience and from the conversations I've had with people that I know, and it stands to reason that it's not just the AFP; it's got to be the other Absolutely. state It's got to be other emergency services agencies, and I think it's testament to the fact that Fordham have reached so many people that that need exists that it also means that to these employers, um, you know, within the state and territory and federal governments, the challenge has got to be taken more seriously. (music) 
And we'll, we'll provide links to Fordham's website, but one thing that's really clear as soon as you click onto it, and it's um, echoing the, the themes of this discussion we've had today, is that it's not just the, the serving member, it's their families and inner circles that are impacted by these events and these um, illnesses, but are also part of the, the journey out of it. They're, it's you, you can't dethatch them. And so it's awesome to see that a lot of those kind of experiences that you've been kind enough to share with us today are being transferred into the Fortum um, support model. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Fortum's probably one of the first to start to involve the family because mm. certainly our experience from the AFP is that there was no no checkup on me at all um, as a support person and you know there's more things starting to come out now about secondary PTSD and Mm. secondary anxiety Um, these things are real Mm. uh, and a lot that the the partners take on Um, and you know we we went to the Fortin Ball um, a couple of weeks ago and they had this screenshot of the kids speaking and, you know, kids uh, talking about what they do to help their parents and it's, you know, making sure that things are done around the house, you know, or um, the washing's put away for mum so she can have some rest time because she doesn't know when she's going to be called out again, you know. Mm. These are the types of conversations that are happening even at the kids' level. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, they're just looking at it at face value. They, they're they not quite understanding the ins and outs of it as we do as adults, but, you know, even as little kids, they still want to help. They still want to be involved um, in making sure that mummy and daddy are okay. Mm. So, yeah, it certainly runs all the way through. So even in the organisations themselves, if they could start involving the family um, in the conversations that they're having with their um, employees about, you know, what could happen? What and bring it, bring it to the training level. Like mm-hmm. um, you know, the recruits, the new recruits mm-hmm. coming through for um, any police force or any any like first responders or defence. You know, start talking about it there, so mm-hmm. they they know what's what could hopefully not to them, but could happen. Um, but what support is in? Um, what support is available to them so they can start the conversations early. Mm. Just to, and to just give you an example, I think some police forces are moving on. I know the AFP um, certainly did a bit of work. I mean, when I dealt with sort of that run of pretty significant things involving kids back in my general duties days, it, it was just, it was a job. You went to it, you dealt with it, you moved on. Um, the, the supporter and that was at the end of that block of shifts, we'll, we'll go for a beer. That was it. Uh, you know, and, and these days, you know, critical incidents, there's, there's proper debriefing, there's proper engagement with, um, with wellbeing services. I mean, and that's, that's crucial. I mean, and it's not, about, it's not about trying to unpick everything at that moment and saying, look, these things might happen to you in the future. It's about actually processing things and, and recognising your place in those things because you aren't, you, you, you aren't the story there. The story is you know, the family have suffered a loss or, or whatever it might be, you're, you're just ancillary to it. And you can have your feelings and your thoughts around it and that's fine. But 
you are ancillary to it and understanding that disconnection is really important because once you start to become part of it, that's where you've got those significant um, challenges. But just one other thing that Sean mentioned about her kids, like she's right, they've never known me without PTSD. And I've, I've often sort of wondered about this and I'm like, well, would I rather them have known me without PTSD and then with PTSD? Or it's, it's like, it's a real dilemma because they've never known me without PTSD, but they also know me now as being a bit of a different and more fun dad. And I love that I can share that with my kids because like, there were times when, you know, we were in the trenches and, you know, I wasn't well and I'd get angry and I'd get cross and I'd raise my voice and, you know, I'd, I'd hate myself for it. And then you'd put the kids to bed and, you know, our oldest Emerson, he'd just, you know, reach down and say, good night, mate. And he'd, um, he'd sort of grab a hold and say, it's okay, dad, I've got you. I love you. You know, and those things, they just break you. Mm-hmm. And then you... you ironically enough though that that then sort of can send you the other way as well where you just think you're a, a shit human being and you're just like oh, what am i doing you know this is terrible but you know it's the it's the love that that my kids and sean has for me and the love that we have for each other that's got us through i i i owe everything to to sean without a shadow of a doubt um and to my kids like i uh, I, I truly couldn't um say whether we'd be having this conversation uh, if I wasn't part of that family unit, like we're, we're special and I, and I love that. It's a wonderful place to leave it. I mean, thank you very much for having the courage to share all that very personal information. And we do hope that it can benefit those others who are going through the same struggles. And yet we'll certainly make sure that we link all of the references in the show notes for those that want more information on Fortum. Um, We'll, we'll do that for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to, to echo Tim's thanks, I mean, not only for sharing, for providing, I guess, a level of normalisation to, to people out there who may be undergoing similar sort of issues, uh, to highlighting the fact that it's not just the individual, but the, the families and loved ones. And Sean, thank you so much for providing your perspective and, and really, for me, I guess, illuminating the fact that this is a, a family affair. We need to be uh, diagnosing, treating and, and sort of working through um, with all the people involved, um, but also for the work you're doing with Fordham, which which seems very much like you are um, sort of capitalising on your experience, some of it very difficult, difficultly won um, and, and using it to help others. So a, a sincere thanks. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.
bedroom. 